Hello, everybody. Um, I'm delighted to have Belinda Clark with me today. Now, I know her as BC, um, and I'm really lucky to know her as BC because I had the great privilege of working with her. And you'll understand if I say it's a privilege because she's an AO, which is an Order of Australia, which is really one of the highest honors. She's in the Hall of Fame. Um, I said to her earlier, she's one of the only people I know that has her own statue. <laughs> um, so I know somebody with a statue. Um, but really, she's an Australian superstar. And I think a real leader, Belinda, in, in women's sport at a time when it wasn't easy to be in women's sport. Um, it wasn't necessarily paid well. Uh, there was a lot of things that a lot of people had to work. Um, but I think that you've had such grit and resilience. Um, and I have to tell people, who, those who know cricket, that when you captained the Australian team from 94 to 2005, which is a very long time, you had a win ratio of 80%. And I really think over more than a decade, and I think that you set the scene for where Australian women's cricket is today. You were also the CEO of Women's Cricket Australia. So you've gotten it there. You had such a big role to play in that. Um, but I also love that you really invested in your own development. You didn't just play sport. You really studied. You worked hard. Um, and you use an evidence-based mindset. Um, and so there's a lot of things that I think people can learn from you. Um, and I want to really go into, first of all, what your career was like. Tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today? Uh, so I, I grew up in a sporting family. So um, that meant lots of time in the backyard and at tennis courts and at cricket fields and hockey fields and all that sort of stuff. And that eventually led me down a path of, um, you know, trying to keep sport in my life post-school. And the way I did that was, um, I chose to study physiotherapy, A, because it had a bit of a sporting tinge to it, um, but also because it was a course that was offered in Sydney and not in Newcastle, which is where I grew up, which meant it was a ticket out of there um, and that the Sydney was where, where the cricket was. So that was, um, that was the, the motivation to, to study something which was um, adjacent to sport. And then really I, from that point on, I was really just trying to juggle a career on field and off field. Um, I worked in uh, in cricket post um, going overseas and backpacking like every Australian does. Uh, I came back with no money. I had a degree, and the the way I could get money quickly was to start coaching and doing work inside inside cricket. So I just started to work in cricket, and from that point on, I've just stayed. I stayed inside the administration of cricket, both from a community perspective and also a high performance uh, element as well. So. I've, um, I've worked across the game from international right down to sort of grassroots cricket and um, recently left, so 2020, I left cricket and started my own thing. So it's been a culmination of many different experiences which have led me to the point I'm in now. Tell us about the organisation you started now, which is called the Leadership Playground. What do you do in the Leadership Playground? What I'm aiming to do is to help um, young people, generally young females, who are uh, interested in sport or playing sport or captaining sporting teams, try and help them navigate their leadership journey uh, and make sure that it's a really productive and positive experience. So in a lot of those female sports in Australia, the ones that particularly are male-dominated sports, um, a lot of the coaching staff and the support staff are males. And so just trying to help the, the captains or the player leaders 
navigate that so that they get a really positive opportunity and, and they look back fondly and they take some skills forward in their life. And at the same time, be working with the system or the people that are coaching them or supporting them to say, you need to give them a bit of space so they can learn and breathe and you know take the full fullness of this opportunity. So that's the bulk of my work. I do do some stuff with kids and I do a bit of stuff in the corporate world, but really what I'm trying to do is ensure that female athletes are um, taking the opportunities that they have in front of them to, to, to explore leadership and have a go at it whilst they've got, you know, sport is such a great um, vehicle to try things. And so that's the, the logic is to try and get in and help them whilst they're in the heat of the, in the heat of the battle. This is so necessary. Um... You know, I, I wish even in, in my business life that I had a BC in my life that could navigate for me, even male-dominated industries. Um, and sport is particularly hard, I think. Um, what do you think you've learned from leadership and, and what are you teaching them? What is it about leadership that, that you think is important for them to know and, and things that you've learned as a leader? I think the first thing is to be really clear on your role and and your role is um in a sporting context it's firstly to play well yourself so you need to be able to manage your own game um your performances uh your role modeling of what it is that you're trying to encourage others to be doing and then you need to be really clear on who are you serving and and why and that then becomes that the team it becomes the organization or the club that you're playing for and then there's a bigger picture. I keep trying to get people to look bigger than, you know, today's today's win or loss is about really what are we setting up for either the next team, the next generation, the next, like we're on this earth to build, put a brick in the wall of something that someone built before and that someone else is going to build after. And just be really clear that um, when you're leading, you have an extra responsibility to make sure that whatever bricks you're laying in the wall are really important and, you know, they're going to stay there, they're going to be really strong. So... Um, that comes down to really understanding who you are, what you're trying to do, and then the impact you can have on other people about how you go about it. That is um, extraordinary. And I wish again that that everybody in every sport had you in their lives. Do you think this is happening in enough in the world, the kind of work you're doing in women's sport? I think there's um, the sporting system has grown enormously over the last five to 10 years, particularly in the women's space. So there is a lot more support coming in um, to, to help athletes. A lot of it is focused on well-being and um, managing performance. So those two things are probably where the bulk of the effort goes. Uh, so what I'm, I mean, there are other people doing similar stuff across the world, but what I'm trying to do is really target primarily the male-dominated sports and, and the sporting landscape I know really well, which is, which is cricket. Um, I've done some work globally inside cricket, which has been fascinating. And yeah, just trying to make sure that cricket as a sport leads, leads that way. But I'm, I'm working in other sports as well, which is, um, which is really interesting to start to cross-pollinate and understand the same challenges in a different context. Yeah. Um, and tell me how cricket, how, how did the women's cricket evolve just to help other people in other sports um, in Australia, how how did it go? Because I remember when when I got to Cricket Australia, how lowly paid women were, for example, and how they were working an extra job and trying to play cricket. How did we get to where we are now, where it's well paid, it's it's recognised, the women's team is people support them. 
Yeah, it's a long, it's a, been a long journey and people are often surprised to hear that uh, the first international women's cricket match was played between England and Australia in 1935, 1934-35 season at, at the Gabba ground in Brisbane. Now that's an awful long time ago. So people tend to look at the last 10 years and say, oh, hasn't it been like a phenomenal rise? And it has been, but it's been built on the back of, you know, a, a long time of many, many women uh, and many men as well, providing opportunities for, for young girls and women to play. So I think the critical um, points in time in Australia were firstly the integration of the Men's and Women's Association. So that happened in 2001 uh, in a two-year trial. So it was, became permanent in 2003. So that's, that's 20 years ago. And from that moment, there's been bit by bit a little bit more investment, a little bit more understanding, a little bit more realising the opportunity. And it's probably been the last 10 years where I think the broadcasters and the sponsors and the people around the game have also seen the potential. And when you get corporates, broadcasters uh, and national sporting organisations or international sporting organisations all pushing in the same direction, you really do start to make ground. And that's really what has happened um, in probably 10, 10 years ago. So integration 20 years ago, drip, 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 drip. And then um, finally, we got enough of the external people to start supporting, um, putting money in um, broadcasting games. So television is critical to become um, popular in this country for, with sport. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's wonderful when I switch on the television now and women's sport is on all the time, whether it's soccer, whether it's cricket, you know, it just was never like that. I can't remember other than tennis ever seeing a woman play any sport, not even golf. The women were just not on television when I was growing up. Um, yeah. now, sport is so important for leadership, for team skills, for all those things. But it feels like, you know, I remember when I was at Cricket Australia that a lot of young women were dropping out around the age of 14, 15, 16 out of sport. Um, and, I, and we're seeing a lot of social media um, and a lot of depression. Um, where do we go? How do we help kids play sport, stay in sport and the, learn these fabulous skills. Yeah. Yeah. I think the um <clears throat> I think that age of dropout has actually got younger now, which is which is alarming. Um, sport needs to keep itself relevant and contemporary and compete with the other things that teenagers are wanting to do. And the rise of the digital world has created uh, additional issues there I think for for sport so um, I think the the people that are making the most progress progress are providing flexible programs uh, a little bit less traditional in their nature so that kids can engage with sport in their own way at different times so they don't want to be Saturday all morning um, and so that that is a challenge because sport is run by a volunteer base who also work so providing this flexibility and changing the way that they do things is a really big challenge for for sport to undertake but the sports that are going well are the ones that people can pick up and drop off very quickly for example if i want to go for a run i can just put my runners on and i can run outside and i can come home i can do it in the morning the afternoon i can do it with friends i can do it by myself so that flexibility is actually create they're the sports that seem to be really capitalizing Unfortunately, they're not necessarily the sports where you learn the teamwork piece as thoroughly because it's not as structured and there's not 
you know, the, the rules that go around it and therefore there's less reliance on other people, which is really what you're getting if you're playing in a team sport. So it's, sport's got some challenges. I, I'm hopeful that, um, you know, we'll continue to adjust and adapt and make sure that, you know, as many kids as possible, particularly girls, because I think it does make a difference to self-esteem, um, you know, understanding your body, understanding um, what it's like to move and be able to move so that when you can move, you're more likely to move in the future. If you can hit a ball, you're more likely to hit a ball in the future. So those foundational skills really are important as, um, as kids are growing up as four, five, six-year-olds. I hope parents are listening to this because I think they play such an important role not to stick a, tele, you know, a phone in somebody's hand and, and a, a screen but to really, really go to the effort. Because I think when you start younger, you probably, and, and do this consistently, you're more likely to stay, aren't you? Um, oh, absolutely, because it's, you get skills. Um, mm. a, lot of, a lot of people drop out when they realise that they're either not going to be in the best team or the national team or this, whatever the, the pathway team happens to be. So therefore, coaching is critical. Like, what is, what is this sport actually trying to do? It's trying to have, you know, kids will say they want to have fun while they're playing sport. So as soon as fun drops out and competition gets too heavy and it becomes cutthroat, particularly the girls, that's when they're dropping out. So it's how do you keep it inclusive and engaging and fun um, through those through those years? And the good ones aren't the ones that are the problem. They will continue to play and they will go through. It's actually the bulk of the people that that need to stay in inside the the structures. Yeah, I want to talk to you about another challenge that I saw in in sport, and that's when people finish their careers. Um, right early <laughs> and you've navigated it really well but I've certainly seen a lot of challenges with with women and men at the end of their elite career trying to navigate getting into the workplace or or doing something and there's only so many coaches and, and commentators one can have right yeah. <laughs> um, so so what do you think needs to happen what are some of the challenges you're seeing there I think the the male system has experienced these problems earlier than the women's system because the women have always had to work and play at the same time. That was certainly my um, experience. And it's really only been the last probably three or four years where the cricketers in this country, the female cricketers, haven't had to have a job. It would be beneficial if they did have a job, um, not only financially but also skill-wise. So this issue is more prevalent in the men's game because they were given large amounts of money when they were young for short periods of time. Um, the, the sports have put a lot of effort into helping people navigate that, but it does take a bit of a cultural shift for the players to actually take it on and, and do it with enthusiasm. There's some great success stories. Um, the problem is it is creeping into the women's sport now because the more you get paid, the less you, more you want to train, the less likely you are to want to have a second string to your bow. Um, but I'm forever asking people that question of what, what are you going to do, you know, next? What, what's your interest? What are your hobbies? How do you uh, have some downtime? Because when you put only your focus onto a sport uh, and something goes wrong, it, that's when I think you get start to get the mental health issues that yeah. go alongside that. So trying to keep really balanced athletes that have got multiple elements of life that they're engaged in during their sporting career and don't wait till you're finished to start thinking about what might I like to do now yeah. um, because it is over very quickly in, in the space of a um, looking back I'm 53 now but looking back it's like a it's like a you know a shot it's very quick um, and it's all over. It is and what would you say to employers because I also found when I was trying to help some of the athletes that the employers didn't see 
what these athletes could bring, which were a lot of skills and team and leadership and, and a whole lot of you know, grit and ability to, to organize their complex lives. But the employers don't see the value in that. What, what would you say to employers about athletes that have maybe studied and, and want to make a transition? Yeah, I think um, they're certainly worth taking a, a gamble on. And I think this comes down to two things. One is that, that, I, that I think of changing. One is the flexible work environments, which will suit people towards the end of their careers. So being able to engage in, acti in some sort of working in activity, not necessarily full time in the office from nine to five, like be able to take some of those tasks and do them when they suit. Um, that's, that's important. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, HR practices that look beyond just experience and look into the skills that people have, I think that's really important if you're trying to get any sort of diversity inside your workforce, but particularly important for athletes because they, they just, a 27-year-old is just not going to stack up against the 27-year-old who's been to uni and been in a grad program, et cetera. So trying to find a way to unpick, okay, what are the skills and attributes that I'm engaging in here and how can I then um, see the positive sides of that, not just go for the obvious choice, which will be the person with the previous job, you know, the well-worn path. You've sort of yeah. got to get, a, get off the well-worn path a little bit. Yeah, I hope that as we go towards skills-based talent management and as we look more at diverse and inclusive teams that that really would come to the fore. And I, I want employers that are listening to this podcast to really think about that. Um, I think it's the true for ex-military. I think it's true for export. People who are coming out of complex situations, a lot of self-discipline. There's, there's so much that goes into being an elite athlete. You see, I want to talk about your own leadership lessons. What have you learned about leadership? How do you lead? What are the mindsets that have carried you to here? I think, um I was really lucky to when I was playing sport to be exposed to people in my teams or in teams that I was playing in who were captaining and leading who were doing it in a way where it was um quite clear for me to, as just by watching I could see what I could I could learn um and so my initial approach was just to take those lessons and do them myself as actions and hope that the others would would watch so this role modeling concept i think is really important and it's not just a physical role modeling but how am i emotionally um, managing myself how am i making safe environments for other people so there's a there's a whole range of things that i think i started with a reasonable base and then i realized i knew nothing and i learned from working i learned from watching people um watching people in in environments that were tricky meetings were difficult stakeholder engagements, were big change programs. And so what I've, what I've learned, my experiences now are a mixture of both those things. But I think when I distill it down, what I think leadership is, is um, an intention to make people or situations better. And if you can keep things simple, then that makes sense to a kid, it makes sense to an athlete, it makes sense to a, you know, a business person. The, the environments they operate in will become more complex. But really, if you've got an intention to help help people move forward or help things push forward and do that in a productive and positive way um, so that people want to come back and try again and try again, then that, to me, is good leadership. Absolutely. And I think you've done that so well across your career. 
Are there any mistakes that you think you made as a leader that you learned the most from? I think the the one that I remember most and that is constantly in my mind is um, uh, was a, later in my cricket career, uh, we lost the World Cup and the team wasn't quite gelling. There wasn't any major issues in the team, but there was some little undercurrents of things just not quite right. And I wasn't playing well myself during this period. So I, at the time, went very much focused on, well, if I score runs, we'll win. So I took a very singular approach to the problem. If I had my time again, I would still try and fix my own performances up, but I would actually would have addressed the issues that I knew were there that I just didn't have the time, the confidence or the wherewithal to deal with. And I that's just been a really big reminder to me that that little things, um, little things that happen often become big things. Yeah. Um, and we lost that World Cup by four runs. And I look, mm. I look back and I kick myself because um, I, I suspect if I'd had the courage to deal with it, um, I, I, we would have won that World Cup. Um, but it was a nice lesson to learn. And I, I, um, I look at it on social media every year when the team that beat us <sighs> celebrate annually. <laughs> So I get I get an annual reminder of that one. Um, I mean I've I've made other mistakes as well, but that's probably the one that I keep that I keep coming back to. Um, in fact, I've made I've made a lot of mistakes, but it's um, they're all you don't get good at anything without making mistakes. So being able to yeah. withstand those failures is probably also part of it. Yeah, and you probably did then address things in the future, didn't you? After that, because you did learn from it. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's not easy to have um, conversations that are awkward. And with the athletes that I deal with today, then there's, you know, the number one thing they have trouble with is um, is having difficult conversations. And I don't think that's a sport-related thing. I just no. think it's a, a human Everyone. thing. It's Everyone. difficult. Um, and so trying to help people approach those conversations in a way that's um, positive and productive and intentional and, you know, your purpose is actually to is address something it's not to blame someone or to so it you know when you're 17 and you're in a difficult situation that's easy to say and hard to do um yeah. and that but that's I think one of the lessons that sport um, yeah. can provide to you you know I've just um written a book and interviewed another uh 15 leaders that really show this and every single one of them made the same mistake as you every single one of them because they really want to create a positive environment they wanted to role model they said, a lot of them said, we did, I didn't have the difficult conversations early enough. And I didn't let go of the toxic people. They were like, I was not strong enough in actually letting the toxic people go at the right time who were influencing a lot of the negativity and things that were going on. Because I think sometimes, yeah. no matter how brilliant somebody is, they actually have to go, um, don't they, um, in a team or in something. I know the All yeah. Blacks do that quite regularly. <laughs> And I think it's it's actually easier in a sporting team to do it than in the business world because of the laws that are around how you manage that situation. It's like it's really difficult to work through that in a, you know, in an industrial situation. Mm. In a team situation, everyone's on these contracts that roll and there's this group of people called the selectors and they make decisions and, and this is an accepted practice and you often don't need too much rationale to say we don't think you're doing X, Y and Z and you're not going to be picked today. And that's fine. You can actually remove people very easily. Um, it's very difficult in, in in normal life to be able to do that. But you do need to deal with it. Otherwise, it will create a bigger problem down the road. 
That's right. Especially when somebody's high performing, it's even harder. And you're saying this is a values and behavior issue, which I think is why we probably do have so many dysfunctional leaders at the top of organizations. Um, I mean, the number of narcissists and, and psychopaths and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's next for you? Where do you want to take this all? Uh, it's a very good question. I, I, I'm just finding my rhythm um, around being able to work with team. I'm working with some teams. I'm working with some individuals. I'm working um, people that work in the sport, people that play the sport. So I feel like um, I feel like I'm just getting started, um, mm. and hopefully playing a role in you know supporting those people as they as they sort of navigate and sport becomes better for the work that I'm doing to help people lead within it. Um, and, and then there's some, some work um, corporate-wise as well. So where do I want it all to go? I, I want to have a fulfilling, fulfilling sort of second half of my career as the way I probably would describe it, by helping other people help themselves and, and then them help other people. So it's become a lot less about me and what I'm achieving and working with my teams and my organisation and all that stuff, and it's now a lot more about helping other people navigate their situations and being in the background, not the foreground. So that's, um, I'd like to continue to do that. And hopefully over the next, you know, five, 10 years, I can have a positive influence. I've got no doubt you'll have a positive influence knowing you. Something people will notice, and I know you won't say it because you have it, is that you are very purpose-driven, which is fantastic. And I've always been inspired by you, but also your humility is always unbelievable and I, I want people to learn from that because you know it, it's it's a beautiful thing for a leader to have and I think it's confident humility I don't think it's it's humility that you know it's good to be what, what you mean by the background is you're still confident about making the impact but you do it with humility and with purpose and and, and I think that is a beautiful thing for leaders to learn from um, and really impactful leadership um, look that was a fantastic conversation I wonder if People are sitting around the world now in sport organizations and going, gosh, I really need to work with her. How do they get hold of you? Where do they contact you? How do they work with the Leadership Playground? Yep. Um, I can go on the website, the leadershipplayground.com.au, uh, I think. Yes. Um, and LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, they're, they're probably the two major places to, to make contact. Um, I am on other social media, but I'm, uh, I'm not into it. I'm not as yes. into it as perhaps I should yes. be, but link, LinkedIn yes. is something that I would be checking on re regular basis. So you can connect on LinkedIn. You can go to the, the website. Please don't send her any marketing and please don't ask her for a job in cricket because she can't help you with that. <laughs> I get regular. I get regular. I'm sure you do as well. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I like helping people, but there's a there's a limit. Uh, exactly. So please only connect with her if you're serious about you know the work or, or want to learn from her. Um, otherwise, please don't. Um, and thank you for that. That was a fantastic conversation. It was so nice to catch up with you again, BC. Thank you. Lovely to see you too.